invite you to turn in the Word of God to 2 Timothy chapter 3, actually a passage that we saw briefly last week, was not our main passage, but 2 Timothy 3, and as well, we will be making reference throughout the sermon to Belgian Confession, Articles 4 through 6. You'll find that in the Thin Forms and Prayers book on page 154. So we'll make reference to that as we go. Last week we began to consider the Reformed doctrine of Scripture. And when we say that, we're not saying that because the Reformed is an alternative to the Christian doctrine of Scripture, but within the Reformed tradition we have a way of expressing things. And this is what we believe the Bible teaches. That's why we have put it into a confessional document. The Belgic Confession is not meant to add any doctrine to the Bible, but to summarize what the Bible teaches in a way that people would be willing to say, yeah, I would die for that. That's the context of the confession being written. The man who was the primary author of the Belgic Confession was himself martyred, Guido de Bray, in 1561. And in putting our beliefs into a document like the Belgic Confession, that's where we're saying, look, I don't want to die for just anything, so let's be in agreement. What matters the absolute most? What is clear in the Bible? And what could be more important than our beliefs about the Scripture? And so a significant number of the articles of our Belgian Confession are given to that doctrine in particular, more than quite a few other doctrines that you might expect more length of time. Now, last week I mentioned the meaning of the word scripture, and I'll state it again here. The word scripture basically refers to writings that are understood to have religious or spiritual authority, that in some way stand to make a declaration over our lives, over our decisions, over our beliefs. That's what scripture gets at. But then even saying that, that leads to other questions, such as how extensive is the authority of scripture? Just how much say does it have? Is it advice? Is it just meant to inspire a godly life? But we have a certain amount of leeway in what that looks like. And then if we grant, as our confessions assert, that the scriptures have final authority over everything they address, then we need to be very clear which books are scripture and how do we know that? And maybe that's a question you've had. You, you have a Bible now, you've appreciated it, but you've wondered why these books and not other books. And so these are some of the questions that we need to look at tonight. And we'll begin with a reading from 2 Timothy 3, beginning at verse 14. Paul, the apostle, is writing to a young pastor and urging him to continue, not only in the faith, but in the way that he relates to the scriptures. See what it says here in chapter 3, verse 14 and following. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. 
Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's ask his blessing. Our Lord God, we pray that this evening your spirit would bear witness with the word, that you would shield us from misunderstanding or from error, that you would guide us not only into a right apprehension, a right knowledge of the facts, but that you would inflame us with the desire to submit to your word and to honor it as your very voice committed to us. All of these things we ask for the glorification of Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. As Christians, we believe that the Bible is the final authority in everything that it addresses. And there can be absolutely no budging on that, or that is the death of the practical witness of the visible church. We believe that the Bible is the final authority. And even when we say the Bible, we're referring, as we're going to see, to 66 books that we describe as the Old and the New Testament. We believe that they are totally authoritative. But what we often fail to identify is why. Why do we think these books and not others are the Word of God? How would we help communicate that maybe to our children or to our family or to friends who wonder, you know, other people have books and They think those are just as important, so what makes yours different? We should be ready to give everyone an answer for the hope that lies in us. Our hope is the gospel. Our hope is Jesus Christ. But that hope is inseparable, practically, from our confidence in the scriptures. And so it should be the case that we have a basic apprehension of the extent of the authority of the word and why we hold the Bible to be the word of God. And so these are the things that we look at tonight. Now, in the very first place, and I will announce our major divisions as we come to them, there will be two, but just understand, authority is not something that the church has simply placed upon the Bible. Authority is not just something that the church put on the Bible. Authority is something that the Bible asserts for itself about itself. The Bible claims it's authoritative whether or not the visible people of God were to acknowledge it. And that's very important. The Bible claims its own authority. Now, how much authority does the Bible claim over our lives? I think for many of us here, we have heard well, we've heard many times, the Bible has final authority. For those who are younger, it's still we're cutting a groove. And that's part of the function of what this is, a catechetical service where we go through these core doctrines of the faith. We're helping to lay a foundation. But even if you've heard it a thousand times, as certainly I have, Which one of us lives like the Bible is the authority over every moment of every day, every breath that I breathe, every inhalation is lived within a world where the Bible says what is true, right, good, just. And so it's useful and it's safe for us to come back and to reflect on the extent of the authority of God's word. Here first how it's summarized for us in our confession in Article 5. If you look there, it says that Scripture has authority, quote, to regulate, found, and establish our faith. 
I'll tell you something that no merely excellent earthly author can do, whether that's a pick your favorite here, whether it's R.C. Sproul or J.I. Packer, they cannot found and establish your faith. The value they have is based upon the sure authority of the word of God. Article 7, and I paraphrase, basically says that the scriptures reveal the complete will of God. And we'll see in Article 7 next week more of what that has to do with the sufficiency of scripture. But what does the Bible itself say? 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, look with me again. It describes scripture in this way, that it's profitable for teaching, for reproof. What is reproof? We don't use that word except when we're in this verse, it feels like. But reproof is to come alongside of somebody and to say, you're doing or thinking or saying this, but in fact, it ought to be this. And the Bible in this way gives us the confidence to do that. Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and that's a stronger term there. And for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete. And so we don't even need something in addition there may be things that clarify the Bible, but they are not bringing a new idea that the man of God may be complete. And so we have a basis of ministerial authority and the authority that Christians have when they try to sharpen one another. That basis is the authority of Scripture. Take what Jesus says in Luke chapter 16, verse 17. Striking statement. Luke 16, 17, Jesus says, It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. And equivalent in English, this would be the crossing of the T or the dotting of an I. He says, it would be easier, it would be more likely that you wake up tomorrow and the laws of physics fade out and this world collapses in on itself than that the law of God should give way. The will of the Lord revealed in Scripture is more stable than the rate of universal expansion or of gravity or any other principle of physics that we think of. Because God cannot lie. And so the authority is extensive, unbreakable. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Whoever then annuls or tries to overthrow one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. No human being has authority to annul any of what God has revealed for us. Christ as the covenanter, Christ as the mediator of the covenant, can, of course, introduce a different administration of how he relates to his people as he did going from the old covenant to the new covenant. But no human being can take away any of what the Lord has said. It has authority. So even at this point, I want to exhort you, and this is an exhortation born out of my own struggles like yours. We must be vigilant to resist the temptation that lives with us every day to set up in our hearts and in our minds a kind of court of appeals where the word says this, but then we say, objection, maybe, you know, can we give some ground here? Can we cut a corner around that? 
or maybe I know that's right, but I want to believe that I can still do this and maintain my fellowship with God, can still have my Christian identity. You cannot. You cannot make a pact with a way of living or belief that breaks the word of God. And this is more and more, I think, what you are going to experience. And I say this to the younger people here. The older people are those who are more mature in Christ have already experienced this, though I admonish you, keep going. You are going to discover that so much of what Christian life actually is and sanctification actually is, is not some enormous temptation that came out of nowhere, but it's the day-after-day grind of resisting the temptation to take what seems mundane and say, in this area, I'm going to create a zone that the word doesn't shine light into. I'm going to have this aspect of my life for myself. And every day then having to, and of course you're going to struggle and you're going to fail, but that means every day saying, yeah, you know, you're right, I did fail. I come back to the word, it has authority. It's not friendly advice. It's not, you will be judged by it. I don't need popularity and you don't need commendation from others at the end of the day. Each one of us will give account for exactly one soul. You will stand before the living God. And you're not like so many people in the world who have never even heard the Bible, have the Bible in their language. You have it, and you'll be judged by it. I'll give an account for if I taught error, but you'll be in a, you will give an account for whether or not you sought the truth and sought to conform yourself to it. And so don't let authority just be this doctrinal point. It's doctrine because it matters very, very much. Now, given the extent of the authority of Scripture, isn't it very, very important to be confident which writings are Scripture? And how do we know? If you look at me at Belgian Confession, Article 4, notice what it says. We include in the Holy Scripture the two volumes of the Old and New Testaments. They are canonical books with which there can be no quarrel at all. In the Church of God, the list is as follows. And I leave you to read it. It is the same list that comprises virtually all Protestant Bibles with which most of us are familiar. Why is it necessary to say this? Well, notice Article 6 mentions other books that you may not be familiar with, and you who are younger almost certainly have not read them, probably never even heard of them, but it mentions other books that we call Apocrypha, and some of those are Esdras, Maccabees, which is a book of history. Well, what are those, and why are they even coming up? Those are a set of books that were written after the time of the Babylonian exile of the Jews into Babylon, but before the coming of Jesus. That's the time period that you're looking at for those books. After the exile, before the coming of Jesus and all the writings of the apostles. So you have the Apocrypha. We'll come back to this. But the Apocrypha, only in 1546, that's late in the calendar of history. It may feel like a long time to some of you young people, but when you put in the span of God's work throughout all the ages, it's not long ago. It's not until 1546 that certain authorities within the visible church assert that the Apocrypha is canonical. Now, what do we mean by canonical? 
I'll give you an example. If you were to come over to the parsonage tonight and we walk over to my shed, we open the shed, you would find inside of there a great big red metal L. What is that? Well, that we call that a right angle. This big metal L that we have so that as we're building things, you can check whether or not the angles come appropriately together. Maybe you're building a table and we are fallible and wood comes in weird shapes when you buy it from a big box store and you gotta make sure things actually come together. And so you take that big metal L, which has been carefully designed and checked with quality control to make sure it has a good 90 degree angle and you put that up against the object and you check and maybe there's a gap. That L is functioning in that moment as canon. The Greek term kanon simply means a gauge or a tool by which you would measure the accuracy of something else. It's a kind of gauge, an authority, for checking whether other things are in spec. The scriptures are our canon. They are the standard that we hold up against our lives, our beliefs, our choices, and out of the world around us, and that's how we decide whether or not something is acceptable. Now, that raises the question then, why do Protestant Christians regard some writings as canonical, but not other writings? And this brings us to our second and final major division here, as we need to just look at our doctrine of canonicity, our doctrine of canonicity. And I want to acknowledge right now the difficulty that this poses. There is no way in 10 or 12 minutes that I can satisfy every conceivable question that you might have about how canonicity developed over time, how, how did the church actually end up with the books that it has. But I do want to be very clear with you. If what I say doesn't satisfy you, this is not a subject that has not been dealt with extensively and well. And if you'd like recommendations of particular books, in fact, I'll make a plan to post them to the church website. One, B.B. Warfield, uh, his book, Inspiration and Authority of Scripture, totally stands the test of time. There are also some newer ones that I can post as well that will walk you through, both theologically and historically, why we affirm certain books as canonical. What we're going to do is do a flyover, do a flyover in terms of our biblical principles and how we understand the Bible to be what it is. Let's deal first theologically. And in terms of theology, let's deal with a first principle. A first principle is something without which you can't even make sense of the situation. You've got to have this first. One of our first principles as Christians is that the church did not inspire the word of God. The church did not inspire the word of God. Who, I, I don't actually mean for you to shout out here, but you children in your hearts had... You have an opportunity here to answer. Who inspired the word of God? God did. It is breathed out by God, as it says in verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God. The church did not inspire the word. And what does that mean? It sounds so simple. Is there every time when God speaks and it's not authoritative? The moment God spoke, the moment that his revealed will was committed to writing, it had authority. It didn't need the church to come along and confer authority on it. 
The scriptures have authority, and the role of the church is to receive and to acknowledge the authority of the word. But the church never did confer authority on the Bible. There was never a time when the church could legitimately say, well, we read through them, and we picked this one and that one, and from now on, those are the ones that have authority. So how did it then happen if the Bible has its own authority? And by the way, again, look at 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, etc. I believe you could functionally insert in there the idea, thus, Breathed out by God and thus profitable. God's word does not return void. It has its power automatically. It's described elsewhere, Ephesians 6, 17, as the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Can you imagine if, you know, you had a, a Roman soldier and he's got his gladius, his sword, and he pulls it out, but it only becomes a sword when he says, it's a sword. It's absurd. The thing is sharp and real. It just is, objectively. And the scriptures have an authority that do not depend on whether the person you're talking to acknowledges it. You use the word like a sword. You don't wait till they acknowledge to you that maybe the Bible's true. It is true. And God works through it. He doesn't depend on others to acknowledge it. He brings them to their knees through it. And so we don't try to give it its authority. We acknowledge it. Now, what did that look like historically? On the one hand, from Moses to the time of the apostles, the Holy Spirit was periodically guiding and working in different prophets and apostles to write the books that we have. So it didn't all come out at once. It spread out over a long period of time. More than 40 authors who are in different socioeconomic categories. You have fishermen, you've got kings, and they're writing totally different genres of literature. We have letters like the epistles. We have psalms that are basically poetry. We have historical books. We have incredibly, uh, beautifully described portions of prophecy that we struggle to make sense of at times. And yet there's one spirit inspiring all of that. Meanwhile, the same Holy Spirit is at work to guide his people to recognize, to perceive the power of his word and its authenticity. And so it's not as if the Holy Spirit only worked in them, but then we're on our own. The Holy Spirit is at work in the people of God to recognize the word. Now, how did they recognize it? And we would say, with our confessions accurately, that it was based on several factors, not just one. It is not reducible to just you know, pick it up and read it and see if you have a feeling, you know, a physical burning in your heart, as some cults have said. And that's how you know, because it gives you a feeling. That is a perversion of a truth. And the truth is this, in the first place, that we know that the Bible is the word of God because of the self-attesting work of the Holy Spirit as God's people read it. Not merely individually, but as a people spread throughout the nations. Can you imagine the incredible conspiracy that would have been required to get all these people in dozens of languages in the early church to all agree together which book was inspired? That would be an incredible conspiracy. The Holy Spirit was attesting these books early on. The way that it's put in 1 Thessalonians 2 is this. 
For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which, and this is the key part, which also performs its work in you who believe. Which one of us who knows Jesus Christ has not experienced this firsthand? The unique virtue and power, the capacity of the scriptures to transform us, to humble us, and to do things that do not make sense if it were a worldly book. To bring about true transformation, the recognition of our absolute depravity and our need of a grace that goes beyond anything we could have imagined. And the Spirit bears witness with the Word. Now, of course, that will not satisfy the unbeliever who has not experienced that. And it doesn't have to. That's not the only way that the Lord has borne witness, as we're going to see even in the way that we confess. The second factor is the knowledge which the church had of the authors. It was not as if, at some point in the 4th century, a, a Christian walked into a cave and found the book of Romans. The book of Romans was written at a time when Paul was well known to thousands and thousands of people. He was a known quantity. And his writing is received by a whole group of people. As we consider how the church receives, even if there's a book that, say like Hebrews, we have uncertainty about the author now, that doesn't mean it was uncertain at the time. But the books as they came are, by and large, very clearly written by people who were known quantities to the people around, known as prophets, had been attested by the Holy Spirit through signs and wonders. And so that's another way that we trust the authenticity of these scriptures, that the people who wrote them were known. A third factor in terms of identifying which books are canonical is this, coherence. Coherence is when you don't have contradictions between things. They work together, kind of like puzzle pieces that fit together. And when you have an entire puzzle with a lot of different shapes all over the place and it comes together, that's a great example of complex coherence. The Bible is a marvel of coherence. Now, it's true, there are people who raise their hand and they say, well, I've heard that there are some significant contradictions. I have also heard that, and I have yet to be faced with any significant contradiction that has anything to do with a substantial point of doctrine. And I'd welcome anyone to show me what that is. Now, it's possible, because the Bible's a big book, to misunderstand things. And so frequently, the people who are saying, oh, it's full of contradictions, have never actually seriously investigated or studied the Bible. They have, like novices, poked their face in. I don't claim to be authority on the Quran or the Bhagavad Gita, but I can say that I've read the Bible and have studied the Bible, and the more that I do, I find, no, they do not contradict. And humanly speaking, the odds that these people writing from such different circumstances over such a huge span of time, sometimes we talk about how different it was even just back in the 70s. Try 700 years ago. Try thousands of years ago. The Bible is written over a span of more than a thousand years. And yet they are in agreement on things that you can never seem to get people to agree on. Sin, salvation, the nature of God, how we should respond to authority. Incredibly, the Bible is coherent in its message. Fourth, there is mutual attestation. What is that? Mutual attestation means that different people in the Bible 
call other parts of the Bible scripture. If Jesus, you know, because we, we hold our beliefs, not each one in a vacuum, but we hold them within a whole web of other beliefs. And in my web of beliefs, if Jesus, I'm already convinced about Jesus, if Jesus calls something scripture, I'm going to go with Jesus. I trust his judgment. Jesus is willing to refer to the entire canon as it was known then up to that point in history, the, what we call the Old Testament. He refers to the canon comprehensively as the word of God. Archaeologists have found to the present day canonical lists that the Jews used during the Second Temple period, the time after the exile prior to the coming of Christ. They had a list just like I've got one in the front of my Bible. And they knew which books they regarded as inspired. And Jesus doesn't raise an objection against any of them. With the known understanding of what was the word of God at that time, he says, have you not read? And so Jesus gives his, lends his authority to the entirety of the Old Testament. The apostles do likewise and quoting from almost every book of the Old Testament. And the fact that they don't quote from one or another does not, should not be taken in isolation to mean there's any problem with that. Acts chapter 17, verses 2 through 3. Acts 17 says, Paul went in, and as was his custom, on three Sabbath days he reasoned with the people from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is Christ. What's significant about that is he founds his doctrine, not simply on saying, I'm an apostle and I had a vision of Jesus, though he was an apostle and he had a vision of Jesus. But he reasons from the scriptures as the authority. And even so for us, somebody could walk in here and claim they had a vision, but their vision doesn't nullify anything that's already revealed for us in the word. Peter likewise affirms Paul's writing of scripture in 2 Peter 3.16. He says, there are some things in Paul's writing that are hard to understand. They felt that way even back then. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. That's remarkable. You have Peter even then being willing to apply the term sacred writings to known writings of the Apostle Paul. And then one last factor that we take into account and that would be prophetic fulfillment. Prophetic fulfillment. And our confessions make reference to this as well. Look with me at Article 5 of our confessions. We believe without a doubt all things contained in them. Not so much because the church receives and approves them as such, but above all, because the Holy Spirit testifies in our hearts that they are from God, and also because they prove themselves to be from God. For even the blind themselves are able to see that the things predicted in them do happen. There are so many prophecies in the scripture, and some await fulfillment, of course. But if you take just the prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah, and you've probably heard this illustration before, but it's worth letting it sink in again. Just the more than 200 prophecies that concern the identity of the Messiah who is to come. Things like that he would be born in Bethlehem, that he would sojourn for a time in Egypt, that he would be whipped prior to his crucifixion, that his body would not have its bones broken, but he would be pierced. 
all these various descriptions of what he was going to be like, that he would be called uh, uh, Nazarene, all of these various things, what are the odds of one human being fulfilling them all? And various mathematicians have tried their hand. It's probably practically impossible to get a dead-on number for something like that. But the example, the classic example that has been run through by statisticians is that if you took the entire state of Texas and you covered the whole state in silver dollars, cover the whole state in silver dollars one foot deep, and you send somebody out there walking, and there's one silver dollar painted red. And they walk and they walk, and they have freedom. At any moment they want, they can reach down and pick up one silver dollar. What are the odds it's the red one? Mathematically, that is comparable to what are the odds that there would be this one person at just the right time who fulfills all these things. And that's not by accident. God orchestrates history in such a way that those who are seeking the truth can be confident. The Lord wants his people to have every confidence in his word. The books of the Old and New Testament do these things for us in these five different ways. So briefly, why not the Apocrypha? Again, I mentioned to you, those are books that were written in between the time of the Babylonian exile and the coming of Jesus. And why does the Roman Catholic Church incorporate those into what they regard as the Bible? And it's worth knowing this because we interact with Roman Catholics. We love Roman Catholic people. We want them to come to a greater knowledge of the truth. Why don't we acknowledge those as Apocrypha? First, because they are not attested and were not attested as canonical by the intertestamental church in their own list of canon in the very time when they existed, nor were they incorporated by Christ or the apostles ever to found any doctrine in any quotations, nor are they used and utilized by the church fathers as though they were canonical then. It's not until 1546, I'm going to state that a different way, I don't want to oversell this, but it's not until 1546 years after the time of the apostles that the church ever seeks to claim that those books are authoritative in the way that, say, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are. Why then? What was happening during that time? The Protestant Reformation was happening during that time. And there had been these false ideas that did accrue and creep in, especially after about 1000 AD. And it was found that the apocryphal books in particular could lend themselves to certain ideas like prayer to the saints or the idea of purgatory, that you have to suffer for some of your sins before you go to heaven. And the apocryphal writings lend themselves to that. And so at the, at the Council of Trent, which was a big meeting of Roman Catholic figureheads to decide what do they believe in contrast to Protestants, in 1546 they said, we affirm these as canonical, and if you don't, you're anathema, cursed of God. And that gives you the context for 1561, the writing of the Belgian Confession, the Belgian Confession is not the church, it is not Protestants standing up and saying, we reject church tradition. It's them standing up and saying, we're with the church, and what you're doing is something new. This is an innovation. We do not stand with it. No one part of the word of God can be used against the other word, against the true word of God. And so it's important for us to recognize limits on this. Protestants do have reasons for what we believe. 
Now, by way of conclusion, we've been reminded this evening of the extent of the authority of the word. I simply want to exhort you again. The weight of scripture must rest upon us. And every day, we have ways of just rolling the shoulder and letting it fall off, myself included. But this word is that by which we'll be judged, not for our salvation. One of the glories is we believe that our righteousness is in Jesus Christ, but we'll still give an account for whether there was gratitude. We'll still give an account for whether we served him. There will be heavenly rewards. And your actions have real consequences. And the word is your only and best guide for how we're called to live. May it be the case then that in the decisions that we're going to make in 2024, if God grants you to be with us all 2024, what a gift, that we are going to prioritize or maybe reprioritize our knowledge of the scriptures above everything else. It's fine to use books to help you understand the Bible, but not to the exclusion of the Bible. And what a grief it is to speak with people and find out that they've read X number of Christian books or even just books, but it's been weeks or months since they studied the Bible. They pick it up and they read it like a fortune cookie, a single verse, but they're not savoring it as God's word to them. And he said more than just tweets. God speaks in fullness. If you want to know the Bible, you have to be in the Bible. If you want to know theology, yes, it's helpful to have systematic theologies, but read the book of Romans a hundred times. I exhort you to do it, and the Lord will bless it. He says it's food, daily bread. He'll fill you up, and he'll make you stronger than even you didn't even realize how malnourished you were. And God will feed us. Continue in it. Finally, look with me, 2 Timothy 3.14. As for you... Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Continue. That means to persevere in the process of being conformed to the word. Let me speak to you younger people here. Like Timothy, from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, and they are able to make you wise unto salvation. But one danger is that people have a a kind of superficial acquaintance with the word, and then as they become older, they say, well, I already know that, and they don't continue in it. And the fact is they really hardly did know the word, and even when they took up the word, they didn't take it up as the means by which God would speak to them and by which they'd be humbled. And they wanted to be masters over the word. And you will only receive for yourself the judgment you richly deserve if that's how you treat the authority of God. But if you humble yourself and say, teach me, Lord, show me the right path, teach me your way, he will pour out his blessings upon you. He may not make you rich in the things of this world, but he will make you rich beyond this world. May we be a people who continues. Let's ask for his blessing even now. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we bless you and we praise you for having given to us your holy word. Please lead us to love it and to know it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.